Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Welcome back, everyone. We are on the road in Munich at the DLD conference and uh, brings together people who meet each other every year. One of my favorite people in tech is Albert uh, Wenger, uh, a general partner at Union Square Ventures and one of the most thoughtful venture capitalists in the business. Uh, his previous book, he's been on the show before, uh, was The World or A World After Capital. Albert, uh, Happy New Year. Are we getting to that world, the world after capital? Is that what AI is? AI could be the major stepping stone. And by the way, Happy New Year, Andrew. It's good to be here. Uh, yes, AI is this technology that lets us create a ton of new knowledge, knowledge to solve big problems, big problems like infectious disease, big problems like battery storage, which we need to combat the climate crisis. The challenge is, are we focused on the right things? Are we paying attention to the right problems? Are we going to use AI to build lots of AI girlfriends and boyfriends um, and distract people even more from what they're doing? Or are we going to use AI to solve uh, these big pressing problems? Um, and by the way, it's not to say that we can't be doing both. It's just that the question is, where is most capital going to flow to towards what kinds of applications of AI? And also, how are we going to basically allocate the rest of our capital, our physical capital? Are we going to make enough batteries or are we not going to make enough batteries? And so when I talk about the world after capital, it is premised on the idea that we're going to allocate our physical capital that we already have wisely towards big problems. Albert, uh, we're in Germany and uh, where Karl Marx, of course, was born. His German ideology laid out a world after capital, his world after capital, which people like Sam Altman and Mark Andreessen seem to be re-articulating in some way, that technology will free us from menial tasks and we'll all be free to, to put it in Marxist language, be poets in the morning and farmers in the afternoon and whatever we want to do in the evening. You talked about this in a world after capital. Yes. Are people like Altman and, and Andreessen, are they being realistic here? Is this a false promise? So I love the fundamental idea that as humans, we can do these deeply human things like being poets, like taking care of nature, of each other and so forth. Um, Marx had this idea of a kind of a historical and material determinism where this was going to come about in a deterministic way by the interaction of the classes. That was his theory. And I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley are technological determinists. They believe if we just built the technology, then this world will come about. And I just think all forms of determinism, whether historical or technological, are misguided. These are choices. We as humans, individually, as communities, as societies, need to make choices and those choices will guide where we will wind up. The technology itself, all it does is it broadens the space of the possible. It makes many things possible. It makes the AI girlfriend and boyfriend possible. It makes the diagnostic AI possible. And it makes manipulation at scale possible. I can now 
target people with individually crafted manipulative messages, right? So to think that it's just about building the technology is just as flawed as Marx thinking it's just going to emerge out of in some deterministic way out of the fight between the workers and the capitalists. So the whole point of the world after capital and kind of the book I've started working on next is to say, no, no, these are actual choices. We have to make choices. How do we make choices? It's all very well talking about agency. I've written books on agency too. Everyone who writes about technology suggests that we have to make the choices, we humans, blah, blah, blah. But we live in a world out, you don't need me to tell you, Albert, you're an investor, where the seven biggest technology companies make up, I don't know, whatever it is, 30% of the entire global economy. We're not making choices in, in how Sam Altman uh, creates the next version of ChatGPT. We don't make choices as to how Google or even Anthropic um, unveil their, their latest technology. So it's a great point. No, no, <clears throat> it's a great point. I, 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 um, when I say we need to make choices, I am a firm believer in the role and power of regulation. Government has a role to play. Um, it's just that <clears throat> we really need to think harder about the type of regulation. And so government at the moment is very much resorting to industrial age antitrust approaches, where instead we should be crafting digitally native regulation. And what does that mean? For instance, every system that's out there needs to be fully programmable. That is, I need to be able to interact with other systems, whether it's from Anthropic, from Google, from Meta, whoever, I need to be able to use compute power that's aligned with me to interact with those systems. Then there's a whole other discussion around, in particular in AI, <clears throat> around open sourcing AI. And I wrote a blog post recently which I called so the Scylla and Charybdis of AI regulation. Because you have two big failure modes. One failure mode is where you're like, look, this technology is so dangerous, we can't open source it. It has to be controlled by a few companies, and obviously that furthers the consolidation of power in the hands of a few technology companies. And that's in open AI's interest, which why it's no longer really open AI in any meaningful word. And it's not great for venture capitalists like yourself, either. Yeah, although for venture capitalists, we've had great success investing in open source companies, right? If you are an early stage investor like Union Square Ventures and you write small checks, you don't need to capture a lot of the value for us to have good returns. So I think it's bad if you're trying to write $400 million checks into things, then they need to become worth whatever, a bazillion dollars, right? Um, but there is a failure mode on the open sourcing side too. And people like Jan LeCun and, and Mark Andreessen are just like, let's open source everything at all times. This technology is more powerful than anything we've had before. And we don't really, we're not really all that well set up for very powerful models to be accessible to everybody. And we need to be able to have a conversation about this. And we are in this kind of stupid tribal dialogue now where if you sort of say, hey, just open sourcing everything right now without thinking about how that technology can be abused and what kind of you know society we need so we can open source all this technology. If you say that, then you're being accused as being like a decelerationist, as being like a you know neo luddite of some form, and then conversely, if you're saying anything about you know um, you can't you know we can't just have these big monopolies, then people are like, well, are you trying to inhibit innovation? So we're having kind of I think a really misguided dialogue because 
the camps are really going extreme on both ends. Instead of sort of saying, no, this is an extremely powerful technology. We don't want it in the hands of just a few companies. And we don't want it out there completely in the wild without having set our society in a way where we can be comfortable that everybody could have an extremely powerful model at their hands. Albert, with all the noise of AI, it seems as if we've quickly forgotten the so-called Web3 revolution, which didn't turn out to be much of a revolution. You it's still that. happening. It's still well, happening. But that was my point. It's obviously, a lot of it was crypto, and the, the, the Sam Bankman-Fried story didn't do a lot of good for that. But there are lots of more radical structural ideas in Web3. Can some of those be... Uh, merged with the AI in terms of reimagining the, the architecture, not just of companies, but of the economy itself? Um, I am super long-term bullish on decentralized systems, and Web3 crypto is the foundation for building truly globally decentralized systems. Um, there is a very strong potential intersection between AI and crypto. Some of it is fairly scary because native machine to machine payment is what crypto is, right? So if machines are trying to buy more resources for themselves, the native way they would do it is through crypto. But on the other hand, you can also see how you could use Web3 type mechanisms to incentivize decentralized inference even decentralized training. And there are people working on this. Um, and that would obviously be the type of AI world that I think we would find potentially more appealing where we have more agency, um, where there's less power concentrated in a few large corporations. We're still though in a phase where Web3 continues to face big regulatory headwinds because it does go up against the ultimate incumbent and that's the state. And when it comes to the state, is there a crisis? I mean, you, you're, you're a keen observer of politics. I want to talk about the environment uh, next. I mean, you, you follow that very closely, both as a citizen and as an investor. Is there a crisis of the state in the early 21st century? And is that the real opportunity for the Web3 revolution? There's a huge crisis of the state. And the crisis of the state exists because states almost universally are still belief that their number one sort of mission is to make the industrial age work. It's states are locked into incrementalism and they're locked into incrementalism because they have very large bureaucracies. The bureaucracies are making small changes. Even when the government changes, the bureaucracy makes a very small change. And so we're caught in, in this incrementalist trap at a time when we need big change. That's why I think things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And yes, crypto is to some degree offers some alternatives here, but we all live in the physical world. Um, and so I think what Balaji is doing with the network state is a really interesting idea to sort of say, let's let new forms of state emerge digitally first, let people connect around new ideas digitally first, and then figure out how we can bring that back into the world. I would also say that we really need to rethink our approach to democracy. So we have so gotten in this rut where democracy is, you show up at the voting booth you know, once every couple of years, you vote for some candidate, and that's your level of engagement. I believe that more traditional or earlier forms of democracy, things like sortition, things like citizens' assemblies, are really powerful, and we've seen this in Ireland, 
with um, the abortion issue. We've seen it with the euthanasia issue in France. Um, this actually works, and we need to do more of it and bring, for instance, the climate crisis into that kind of model instead of into the model that we have at the moment of elected representatives who are subject to short-term voting cycles. You're not a doomer on AI, but uh, would it be fair to call you a little bit of a doomer? No, Certainly no, some no, existential I, grief, uh, some existential worry when it comes to the environment. I, 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 um, I believe we face real existential risks in the world today, and the climate crisis is an existential risk. By existential, I don't mean it'll wipe out all of humanity the way AI might in the extreme, but it's we are on. Uh, a trajectory where we might significantly reduce the amount of viable living space for humans, where we might significantly disrupt our existing food supply. And so, yes, if you told me that 10 years from now we have starved 100 million or 200 million people because we didn't get on top of the climate crisis, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. So the way I think about the world is we have these extraordinary crises happening, in particular the climate crisis. We have this extraordinary new technological capability with AI that comes with its own set of risks, including the existential risk. People who dismiss the existential risk, again, like Mark Andreessen, who dismisses everybody who talks about existential risk, I just think he can't dismiss it. Do I think we're all going to get you know, killed by some you know, a super intelligence tomorrow? No. But do I think that is a possibility down the line? Absolutely. And if we don't think about it, if we're not smart about it, if we don't try to build these technologies in smarter ways, then yes, we're increasing that over time. Just like people have known about greenhouse gases since the 1700s, literally the 1700s. Um, and, you know, every turn we're like, yes, this is a problem. We should do something about it. And then we don't do something about it. And it gets to the point where now it really is a threat to hundreds of millions or billions of people to, to their lives. And I think AI is on a much faster trajectory. So if we don't think about the existential risks now, they will come to bite us even faster and even worse than climate is biting us now. One of the big movie events of 2024, Albert, will be uh, Alex Garland's new film about uh, uh, an imminent American civil war. Lots of been, books have been written about that. The Economist, uh, Adam Tooze, right, popularized the concept of a polycrisis. You, you follow these various crises, the political crisis, you talked about democracy, the environmental crisis, the issue of big tech. If the poly, of these polycrises merge, synthesize, could we be on the verge of, of, of a Garland-ish or esque breakdown of order? I believe it's within the realm of the possible. I don't think it's imminent. I don't think it's uh, inevitable. But I certainly think anybody who says, well, it just can't happen, is not a student of history. Um, there's an incredible book called The C Collapse of Complex Civilizations mm -hmm. by Joseph Tainter. And it traces, it gives very concrete examples of past collapses, but it also has a theory. And it's a theory of diminishing returns to the bureaucratic state. And that's exactly what I was saying earlier. We have these bureaucracies. These bureaucracies are in mired in incrementalism at a time when we need dramatic change, not incrementalist change. And the longer they basically stick their fingers in the dike, the more water builds up behind it. And when it breaks, it's going to break more violently. And that includes the possibility of civil wars, not just in the US, but in other parts of the world. Um, and you, the climate crisis is absolutely compounding that. 
So I don't believe we're going to get a repeat of the transition from the agrarian age into the industrial age. You know, we, history doesn't repeat, but as Mark Twain famously said, it rhymes. So that transition was extremely violent. And right now we are on course to a violent transition, unfortunately. And so all my speaking and writing is about, I don't think it's too late to avoid that violent transition. But with every year that goes by where we keep fiddling with incrementalism, the probability of the violent transition goes up and up and up. And you talk about this dangers of incrementalism. Are you suggesting that, I don't know what the word, the alternative word to incrementalism is, a, a revolution of some sort? Does that have to come initially from politics? You're also a keen follower of politics in America, you back some of the candidates, some more successfully than others? Well, that's why I believe we need to look to these other democratic means, right? So if we don't go the path of saying we, instead of doing these, you know, two-year, four-year election cycles, if we don't go and say, let's do a citizen's assembly on climate and let's come up with a program that's a radical transformation where we say, look, for five years, six years, ten years, we're going to take 50% of GDP and point it at this problem, and we're going to come out on the other end. It's going to be a real sacrifice, where we're, but it will have been decided not by politicians. It will have been decided by citizens, informed by the science, in a democratic way. Um, we can do this. It's not too late to do this. We can do this. We have technology that we can point at the problem. We just need to do it at scale. So every year that we wait and we don't do this, we increase the likelihood of a violent transition, we increase the likelihood of a civil strife, of revolutionary approaches, etc. And we're seeing this in countries around the world. It's not just happening in the US. This is not a US domestic phenomenon. This is a global crisis and a global problem. Uh, Albert, you're a very busy venture capitalist at Union Square Ventures, a very successful one too. But you made time to write one book, uh, A World After Capital. You suggested you're thinking of doing another one. What's the value of writing and books to you? Books are the defining human invention. It, I can read a book today that another human wrote a thousand years ago in a different part of the world. It is the way we can transmit knowledge. The act of writing a book is also the ultimate way of refining and honing your own thinking. And I don't just write on my book, I write on my blog, and the blog um, helps me to think through issues. It's when you condense things into writing that you really force yourself to be to challenge your own thinking. And the beautiful benefit of putting writing out there is you get then feedback from people. Um, you can have them look at drafts. I wrote my prior book on GitHub publicly. I got a ton of feedback. I believe the book's much better for it. I think our investing at Union Square Ventures is much better for the fact that we put a lot of our ideas out there even before they're fully finished so that we can get feedback from people who are smarter than us, closer to the subject matter than us. And it's that process from which great ideas can emerge. And finally, Albert, I can't resist asking, uh, have you started the new book? What's it going to be about? It's going to be about the values that we need to guide this. So the word values is something that has become almost like a third rail. People are afraid to talk about it because it seems enmeshed in various conflicts uh, that people would rather stay away from. But I believe fundamentally it's about values. And the question is, where do those values come from? 
Um, how can we um, have values that might actually be to some degree universal, meaning that humans all over the world might be like, yeah, these seem like values that uh, we too might embrace. Um, so it'll be uh, kind of looking at the history of philosophy and it will uh, try and examine where the kind of values for humanity might come from um, for the future. A return to the Enlightenment, an attempt to get beyond the Enlightenment, a reaction to the Enlightenment? I would say the Enlightenment produced a lot of very good ideas. I would say that um, subsequent um, philosophical inquiries also produced some good ideas. And we've learned a ton about technology. We've learned a ton of science since then. And so we can take all of those and we can go beyond what's been before. In other words, it's a book about merging the ideas, the what you would say the values of the Enlightenment, with the technology of the 21st century, Web3, and, and, uh, AI. And with, and with some of the insights from the East. I think the Enlightenment um, was a little too much about humans just forcing their will bluntly onto nature. Uh, and I think we have developed a much more sophisticated understanding how much nature exists in symbiosis. For instance, our skin lives, has bacteria on it, and they make our skin better, not worse. And that, I think, needs to flow into our view of the future as well. So when should we expect to see the book, Alvin? Not anytime soon. <laughs>